Let's go in our Bibles right now to the book of Psalms, Psalm 148, this evening, Psalm 148, and we'll read that psalm here in just a moment. You'll notice that as we read the psalm, once again, this is one of the hallelujah psalms. It begins and ends with the phrase, praise ye the Lord. That phrase is a command. It is an expectation of the Lord that we would praise him. And this particular psalm is written in a sense or in a way that it is setting forth the duty of all of creation to praise Jehovah. Because he has created us, we have a solemn duty to praise the Lord. And the emphasis is, is here in this psalm that all of creation is intended to praise the Lord. And the psalm ends with the responsibility that you and I have to praise the Lord as those who have been created by God and also as those who are the people of God. And so let's look in Psalm 148. We'll read the entire psalm. The scripture says, beginning in verse number one, praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise ye him, all his angels. Praise ye him, all his hosts. Praise ye him, sun and moon. Praise him, all ye stars of light. Praise him, ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. He hath also established them forever and ever. He hath made a decree which shall not pass. Praise the Lord from the earth, ye dragons and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and vapor, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl, kings of the earth and all people, princes and all judges of the earth, both Young men and maidens, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is excellent. His glory is above the earth and heaven. He also exalteth the horn of his people, the praise of all his saints, even of the children of Israel, a people near unto him. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Tonight, there is a duty that we have to praise the Lord. Do you understand this evening that even when we don't feel like praising the Lord, we are commanded to praise the Lord? What I've found in my personal experience is that when I obey that command, even when I don't feel like it, my feelings change after a while. And it's amazing how praising the Lord has an effect on one's emotions The psalm is really broken into two distinct divisions. The first six verses talk about the duty of the heavens to praise the Lord. And so he's going to set forth and call out to the things that are in the heavens, commanding them to praise the Lord. The latter part of the psalm, verses 7 through 14, is going to speak about the duty of the earth and the things on the earth. To praise the Lord. Now it's all cumulative because it's building to the point of the of the conclusion of the psalm, which is that you and I 
the people of God ought to praise the Lord, but he's, he is starting in the heavens and he's working his way down to the earth and then he's putting the responsibility at our feet tonight to praise the Lord. So notice in the first six verses, the duty of the heavens to praise him. And in verse one, he says, praise ye the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights. Now, obviously, you and I are not in the heavens, at least not yet. There are those who are in the heavens who've gone on to be with the Lord before us, and certainly we could say that they are praising the Lord. But the emphasis here is that praise should be coming from the exalted and high places of the universe. And actually, this word heavens can refer to the sky that we look at, the, the, where the clouds and the birds fly. It can refer to outer space, where the sun, the moon, and the stars are. And it can refer to the abode of God, which is above all of that. And the implication here is that in all of those high exalted places, praise should be directed towards God. The psalmist has in mind here the heavenlies, as well as the firmament, which we can see. And the idea is that the praise is going to come from out of our sight, as well as within our sight, from our perspective here on earth. So he wants all that is in the heavens, all that is in the heights, to praise God. Now he's going to begin naming some of these things. In verse 2, he says, Praise ye him, all his angels. Now the angels, the angelic beings are supernatural beings created by God for the purpose of giving Him glory and praise. The word angel means messenger. And often we find the angelic beings, those who are faithful to God, bringing messages or uh, doing errands for God, if you will. But we also see these angels engaged in worshiping God. For instance, when Jesus was born here on the earth, there was an angelic choir that announced his birth and proclaimed glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. We find these angels frequently giving praise to God. In fact, sometimes we find when these angels would appear on earth because of their supernatural appearance and the great power that they have, sometimes men will fall down to worship them. But these angels will never receive worship. They will always say, that men should worship God because they themselves were created to glorify and praise God. In Isaiah chapter 6, a scene is painted for us around the throne of God in the heavens and the cherubim, which are a special kind of angels created by God, are pictured as circling around the throne with two of their wings covering their face, with two of their wings covering their feet, with two of their wings flying and crying out, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. And they do this all the time, giving praise and glory to God. So the psalmist calls out to the angels to praise the Lord. Certainly they do so. The host that he mentions in verse number two is the heavenly host. These are these angelic beings, these angelic creatures whose task is to praise the Lord. We will be exposed to their praise when we get to heaven and are in the presence of the Lord. But there's something special about our praise that the angels cannot match 
And that is that we have tasted of redemption. And they've never had that opportunity. Verse number three, then, he calls out to the sun, the moon, and the stars to give glory to God, to praise God. Now, we see these heavenly bodies on a daily basis, at least when it's not cloudy. Um, Today, it was so nice, wasn't it? It was warm and it was sunny. Do you know, I went out on the back deck today and I took my computer and I just sat in the sun and I got some vitamin D. I enjoyed the sun shining uh, on my body. And isn't it something to look at the sun in the sky to at night? We just have come through the time of a full moon and the moon has been brilliant at night to see the moon in the sky, to see the stars that are twinkling in the sky. And all of these things we're told, are the handiwork of God. These are the things that God spoke into existence and the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. The sun, the moon, and the stars are called upon to give praise to God. As we look up into the sky and we see the majesty of these heavenly bodies and we see the immensity of the universe, all that God has made, we're reminded of God's immensity, we're reminded of the magnitude of his power, of his incredible wisdom to have designed such a scene for us to look upon. And of course, this makes us feel quite small and helps us to understand how large our God is. The sun and the moon, the stars of light, are called upon to give praise to God. By the way, they do. When you look up into the sky and you see those stars twinkling in the night, it ought to cause you to give praise to God and to think, those stars, what is the purpose of those stars? I think that God put them there just to give glory to Him, just to give praise to Him. You and I aren't going to travel to those stars. They're too far away. But there's something that we can see, and they, are, they give a testimony of the creative power of God. So he calls upon sun, moon, and stars of light. Then he calls upon the heavens of heavens in verse number four, and he asks the heavens of heavens to praise the Lord. This heavens of heavens is encompassing all of the solar systems. The scientists tell us that they've lost track of how many stars there are, and they cannot even see the end of all that exists in, in the in the heavenlies, in outer space. And and this is the idea that all of this is called to record to give glory and praise and honor to the name of God. That vast space that is out there is for the glory of God. Then in verse 4, he calls upon the waters that be above the heavens. And this is a curious phrase. This could refer to the idea that some scientists, some creation scientists believe that before the flood, there existed a water canopy that surrounded the earth and that protected the earth and gave it the ideal climate that it would have possessed at that time. And that's a possibility. Maybe that is what the psalmist is referring to. Could also be referring to the fact of the water cycle, which we've seen in some of the other psalms here recently that the water cycle and the way that the water comes upon the earth is uh, is a great praise and glory to God 
as the moisture stays in the sky and then it falls in the right conditions. It falls upon the earth and it waters the plants and it waters us and all of us require that water for life. So it could be that which he's referring to, but he's calling upon all of creation, all the things that are above us to give glory and honor and praise to the God of heaven. And in verse 5, he says it this way, let them, all of these things, praise the name of the Lord. Now he's going to repeat this idea that the name of the Lord is to be praised. And I want to point out to you again, as we have many times through the course of this study in the book of Psalms, that the name of God is what reveals his character. If we didn't have the names of God, we wouldn't know what God is like. For instance, his name, which is used quite a bit here in Psalm 148, the Lord, which stands for the proper name of God, Jehovah, and that name tells us that he is the self-existent one. So we learn something about God's nature, about his attributes. We, we study the scriptures and we find out that God has many names that he has revealed to us. And as we worship God, his names are helpful in focusing our praise and reminding us of the God who we are praising. This means that our praise should be specific and that our praise should be directed toward his attributes not just towards the ways that he has blessed us. And it certainly is appropriate to be thankful for the things God has done for us and to think about the ways that God has blessed us and to praise him and thank him for that. But we can expand our praise by praising him for who he is. And that will help us very much in our prayer life. We see that we ought to praise God according to his name. His name is to be praised. It is a good reminder as well that all of creation declares his Godhead and his power. And we're told that in Romans chapter 1 that the things, there are things that are clearly seen of God by people who have never read a Bible just by looking up into the heavens, they can see his eternal power and his Godhead, the Godhead referring to the fact that he is a triune God. And so all of creation is called to praise the name of the Lord. Why? Why should creation praise the name of the Lord? Well, it's stated simply in verse 5, he commanded and they were created. They wouldn't exist without his creative power. Those things would not be had God not declared them or spoken them into existence. It is the command of the Lord that we have to thank for everything that exists. There's no other explanation that is needed. Now today, many people will say, well, I can go with some of the Bible, you know, but I just can't handle the first few chapters there in Genesis. I, I don't understand how you could, how you could interpret that literally. Well, if you take the creation account out of the beginning of Genesis, you might as well tear the rest of your Bible out and throw it away as well. Because the rest of it is made irrelevant by declaring that God did not create. We find the account of creation and the attribution of creation given to God all through the Bible, 
Here's an example in the book of Psalms where we're reminded that he's the one who commanded and everything was created. Then in verse 6, we're reminded that not only did he command them and create them, but also it says, he hath established them forever and ever. He hath made a decree which shall not pass. And the idea here in verse 6 is that God made this earth to endure. He made this earth to carry on. And, And we understand that the time is coming when because of the curse of sin, God is going to remake the heavens and the earth. And he's going to take away all the evidence of the curse of sin and put it back to the way that it was when he first created it. But understand that God made these things and, and all of these things are designed by God to continue on. That means that he is the one not only who created all things, he also is the one who sustains all things. We're told that the universe works like a giant clock. Do you think that that happened by accident? That somehow through some cosmic accident, all these things just move in such a predictable motion that we can, that, that scientists can predict exactly where a comet is going to be at a particular time based on the mathematical calculations that they can do. None of that is, is a mistake. It's our God who has established this. The earth has been placed here and is maintained by his, by his hand. And it says he hath made a decree which shall not pass. That's the idea that God has commanded something and it's not going to pass away. What is being said in verse 6 is that God's authority is everlasting and God's authority is unassailable. No scientist is going to overthrow the power of God. God is quite God is quite secure in his place of authority. His decree which he has made is not going to be overturned and we can praise God for that. So in the first 6 verses all of these things in the heavens are called to come and give praise to God. But then in verses 7 through 14, there's the duty of the earth to praise Jehovah. In verse 7, he says, praise the Lord from the earth. Now, from the earth is our vantage point. This is where we live. This is where we're going to stay. I'm kind of skeptical about colonizing Mars personally. I know that I'm not terribly interested in it, but you probably already know that. Just like the heavens and the heavenlies and these creatures in the heavens, these stars, these bodies that God has made, they have an obligation to praise the Lord. In the same way, all the things that are on the earth ought to praise the Lord. Of course, this is going to include us, but in the earth there are many things that are giving praise and glory and honor to Jehovah. He mentions specifically in verse 7 the dragons, and all the deeps. And this is not the only place that dragons are mentioned in the, in the scriptures. And some have puzzled over what exactly that means. What is this referring to? Well, it could be that it's referring to uh, some sort of a dinosaur creature that was familiar 
to those who would have been living on the earth at this time. You say, what, all the dinosaurs were gone? Perhaps, and perhaps not. Uh, there are some interesting indications that some of those, those dinosaurs may have lived past the flood and existed on the earth. Whatever the case, a dragon is to us a mysterious creature, just as the deep places of the ocean are mysterious places. If you've ever seen some of the photographs that come from the deep places of the ocean, when they put these submersible machines down into the depths with lights and cameras, and they bring videos back of these fabulous creatures that live way in the deep part of the oceans. All of these amazing creatures are expected and commanded to give praise to God. They're all designed by His hand for a purpose. They all give glory and honor to Him. Even the deep places and all the wonders of the ocean depths are created by God simply to give glory and honor and praise to Him. We're told that The depths of the ocean are perhaps the most unexplored places on the planet. And there is who knows what down there. But whatever they find, it will all be for the purpose of giving praise to God. He goes on in verse 8, and he says, Fire and hail, snow and vapor... Stormy wind fulfilling his word. So not only are these incredible, mysterious places and creatures given the command to praise God, but also the weather patterns and the seasons that we observe are to give praise to God's name. When you and I see the power of nature on display, we ought not to think, wow, Mother Nature... By the way, that bothers me when people say that anyway. Mother Nature? Who's Mother Nature? How about Creator God? The one who spoke all of that into existence. The one who made it all. When we listen to the wind blow and we realize the power that is found just in the currents of air moving across the earth, we ought to be reminded of the power of our God. When we see lightning streak across the sky and light everything up. We should be reminded of the incredible power of our God. Hail, snow, when we see the beauty of the snow on the ground, when we see the vapor and how mysterious everything looks when there's a fog, we ought to be reminded of the beauty that God has placed in this world. All of this fulfilling the word of our God is to praise his name. All of it is to lift him up. He goes on then, and he speaks about mountains and all the hills. We think about the majestic mountains. I was just listening today to the account of the first climbers to conquer Mount Everest, and what a formidable task that was, how many people had died trying to get to the, to the pinnacle, to the peak of Mount Everest before it was actually accomplished. And I'm reminded about how on this earth there are these incredibly majestic mountains that we can see. Then there are lower hills. 
hills like we're maybe more familiar with, that we can walk up and down. We call them mountains, but they're not too much of mountains in comparison to the Himalayas or even the Rockies. But there certainly are mountains and hills, and these mountains and hills draw our attention to them. Their beauty, their majesty reminds us of the beauty and majesty of the one who created them. They're placed there to give praise and glory to God. The fruitful trees and all the cedars. Aren't you thankful for trees that bring forth food that we can eat? You probably at your home have some apples, some oranges, maybe some peaches, although they're not really in season, some plums. You might have some other things that come off of trees. You might have uh, some things that come off of a bush that you enjoy eating, maybe some vegetables that come off of plants. And these things are a reminder to us that in nature or creation, God placed many things that are for us to enjoy. And as we enjoy them, we can give thanks to God for his provision. We can praise him. All of these fruitful trees praise God. The cedars, which we're not as familiar with, were majestic trees. The the cedars of Lebanon that would have been known to the people of Israel. They would be comparable to the redwood forests on the west coast that we would be more familiar with. These very large, majestic trees that give testimony to the incredible power of our God to create such things that can grow. Have you ever thought about how a tree can be planted from a seed and in a period of years can grow up and there can be a forest Several years ago, we were up in Tioga and Potter County for our family vacation, and we took the opportunity to go to the logging museum that's over in Potter County, if you've ever been. I think it's over in Cowdersport. If you've ever been able to go up and see that museum, it really is is something. But we were astonished to find out that most of the forests that exist today in the northern part of Pennsylvania had been clear-cut in the late 1800s and had completely disappeared. And they went through in the 1920s and 30s and planted seedlings of hemlock and other trees like we see today. And then 80 to 90 years later, when we drive through the north central part of Pennsylvania, all those beautiful trees have grown since that time. And I'm reminded of how God made it so that a little seed or a little sapling can grow into a majestic tree that provides wood and shade, contributes to the water cycle, has everything to do with all of this uh, carbon exchange and oxygen that we breathe and all of those things that are so necessary to life. And isn't it incredible that God made something so small to get so big And it reminds us of the power of our God. And those trees really give praise, glory, and honor to him. He goes on in verse 10, and he speaks about the beasts and all cattle. And the beasts would refer to the wild animals, uh, those which are not tamed by man. And the cattle would refer to the domesticated animals of all kinds, 
that men raise for food and for all sorts of different uses that they have for them. And the beasts and all the cattle are given for the purpose of giving praise and glory to God. When you see a beautiful deer out in the field, it's a reminder of the beauty that God has placed in the world. When you see as he goes on and he speaks about the creeping things and the flying fowl, when you see, I saw the other day, a bald eagle flying across a field and was reminded of the majesty that exists in the world. We often see red-tailed hawks and osprey and peregrine falcons, some of these majestic birds of prey, some of the beautiful songbirds that come to our feeders that we can observe and watch in the wintertime and give us such delight. And all of these creatures are designed by God to praise the Lord. Even the creeping things. You say, what are the creeping things? The bugs. The, The little creepy crawlies that you're not that fond of. Some of you ladies say, oh, there's a spider in the house. Just remember, it's there to praise the Lord. It's there to give glory to Him. It's got a purpose. Uh, Some of those things, as you look at, and you know, as you dial down to the intricate level, and you look at creation, that which God has made, and you look at something as simple as an ant or a honeybee, these creeping things, and you begin to realize how these little creatures contribute to the complexity of life on this planet that we live in and how carefully designed they are for the task that God has given them. And as those little ants scurry around doing their thing, they're giving praise to God. As those bees fly in and out of the hive, bringing back and forth the pollen and the nectar... They're giving praise and glory and honor to God. Sometimes I like to just sit at my beehives and watch the bees come in and out. They're so fascinating to watch. When they're collecting pollen in the height of the season, they come back carrying suitcases of pollen. That's what it looks like. They have pollen stuck to their legs in yellow clumps and they come flying back into the hive and they waddle back up in through the comb and they place that in where it belongs and they deposit the nectar that they've collected and all of that is a testimony to the ability and the power of our God. When we see these things, we should be reminded that all of creation is praising the Lord. Are you getting the idea that literally everything gives praise to God? And now, as he's warming to his subject, he comes to the thrust of the psalm. All of these things do give praise to God. They don't even have to be told to give praise to God. They just do it. Jesus said, when there were some who were criticizing that some were praising him, He said, if they didn't praise, even these rocks would cry out. Rocks would give testimony because they know who the Son of God is. The implication is all of creation has been given to praise the name of the Lord. And so then he clearly states in verse 11 that all people should praise the name of God. 
He names them in verse 11. The kings of the earth. Those who have authority. Those who wield power and believe that they are so powerful that they can do whatever they want. Remember, you better praise God. Man who thinks he's so strong is so feeble and small in the face of God. Kings of the earth and all people. All people should give praise to God. Then he reiterates it again. Princes and all judges of the earth. These are people with a smaller area of authority. Uh, they They exercise a smaller place of authority over others. But they ought to give praise to God. They ought to magnify Him. Wherever you are, whatever your place or your station, you ought to give praise to God. Just so that we're clear, in verse 12, he says, Young men and maidens, old men and children. Whether you're a man or a woman, a man or a child, young or old, your responsibility is to give praise to God. And the reason is, Because just like everything else, you have been created by God. You owe to Him your very existence, your vitality. Men like to think that they can exist without God. You couldn't think one more thought without God. You couldn't breathe one more breath without God. You couldn't take one more step without God. It's of His mercies that you are not consumed. You understand this evening that whoever you are, wherever you are, you have a responsibility to give praise to God. In verse 13, he says, let them praise the name of the Lord. There it is again. For his name alone is excellent. In other words, again, our praise is to be directed according to the name of the Lord. We ought to praise Him as He truly is, by the names that He has revealed, instead of as we hope He would be, or as we imagine Him to be, or as we would like Him to be. Let us praise Him as He has told us that He is. The Holy God, the Righteous One the omnipotent God, the omniscient one. You think about what the scripture tells us about his name and you'll be reminded about how to praise him. And then, so that we're clear, he says, his name alone is excellent. That means he's the only one who deserves this kind of praise and this kind of glory. There's no one else who is like him. He stands alone in an exalted place. He is lifted up like no other. He ought to receive glory that no one else receives. His name is excellent. And I love how he says his name alone is excellent. No one else's name is excellent like his. Then he goes on in verse 13 and he says, His glory is above the earth And the heaven. Now, what he's painting for us there at the end of verse 13 is this thought. Bear in mind that from the beginning of Psalm 148 up to this point, 
He's been talking about how all the things in heaven and on earth ought to give glory to God. And now he's going to remind us that his glory is above all of those things. So the most immense thoughts that we can think, he's more immense. The highest that we could imagine, he's higher. The the most powerful that we could fathom, he's more powerful. He is the one whose glory is above the earth and the heaven. You and I think that earth and heaven is glorious. And certainly from our perspective, it is glorious. It's amazing to think about the creation and all that God has made, to to contemplate uh, all of the glories of creation. But remember that the one who made it all is more glorious than that which he has made. His glory far outreaches that which we can relate to and understand. He is glorious beyond our wildest comprehension. Now he goes on in verse 14, and he states that this one who is to be praised also exalteth the horn of his people. And that idea of the horn speaks about the the authority, if you will. And it's really the idea that he has lifted up his people. Now, here he's talking about the nation of Israel. So he's taken his people and he has set them in a special place above other people. Does that make sense? And so he's been good to his people. He has exalted his people. He has exalted the praise of all his saints. So think about this. He has given a measure of glory to us, which we enjoy. Things like, if you think about us, particularly tonight, that we should be called the sons of God. That's an amazing thought, that he would call us his sons, that he would call us joint heirs with Jesus Christ. So he's given us a little taste of glory, if you will. But why has he done that? He's done that so that we would take that and give him even more glory. He's given us that so that we can praise him even more. Now, he mentioned specifically the children of Israel who are a people near unto him. And certainly in the Old Testament, the children of Israel were privileged to have the promises of God, to have the covenants, to uh, be called the people of God, to have the privilege of fellowshipping with God in the tabernacle and later in the temple. This is a people that is near unto God. We enjoy similar privileges today as the people of God in this New Testament era because we have the privilege of having the Word of God. We have the privilege of being a part of a New Testament church. We have the privilege of having a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So you could say about us, like the children of Israel, we are a people near unto Him. And the implication in verse 14, as it, as it uh, accumulates from verse 1, is this, that if all of these things should praise God, then of all things and all people, we should praise God. We should be the ones who give praise to God like no one else because we have been given the opportunity to be a people near unto Him. 
And he concludes with this thought, Praise ye the Lord. What a privilege it is tonight to be the people of God. And if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then you are supremely blessed and you ought to praise the Lord. In fact, you have a duty to praise the Lord. Whether it's sunny or cloudy, whether you're young or old, whether the times are good or the times seem bad, you and I have an obligation, a duty, and yes, even a privilege to praise the Lord. And so tonight I say to you, praise ye the Lord.